don't aim to solve all the world's problems, but we do offer you peace of mind, hope, laughter, and ideas on how you can help improve circumstances and communities. Good change is for you. For us, we take to heart your concerns about anger, injustice, and helplessness, the pain that we each feel, and give you something better to witness, something better to believe in. In many ways, this podcast is the opposite of self-help. It's us help. We draw attention to kindness, to the better angels of our nature. We swap stories that bring smiles, deep breaths, inspiration, and ideas to help us evolve. We introduce you to people who are positively transforming lives, leaders of movements, or everyday heroes who are making change. Good change. Good change highlights the common ground we share, the unlimited positive impact of a single person, and the greater good. Welcome to Good Change, a podcast about making a world of difference. Please welcome your host and good change maker, Ken Streeter. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Good Change podcast. This is Ken Streeter, and today's guest is uh, truly, truly a visionary, a pioneer in public and charter school education. It's Dr. John Bullock. Uh, he uh, founded and operates one of the largest brick and mortar charter schools in the nation. Uh, he's a soccer coach, non-parallel, and a community leader, and we're super excited to have John on the show today. John, welcome. Well, thanks, Ken. I appreciate being here. I'm excited uh, for your, your podcast. I'm, I'm honored that you're here, and I'm glad you're excited. And uh, some people may not know this, but John and I actually shared a stage a few years back. And uh, I remember John wasn't feeling well that night, and he's still a bundle of energy. Anywhere he goes, any stage he stands on, any classroom that he's in front of, is a positive bundle of energy. But that night, he wasn't feeling great. And so I suggested an intro to uh, maybe just get him a little bit more fired up and feeling like he could ease into the night with some great power. John, do you remember that night? Do you remember that intro? I do. I was suffering from laryngitis. And uh, we, had, we had both uh, agreed to speak at this event. And you said, hey, Use that to your advantage. Tell, tell a joke about, uh, you know, having a frog in your throat. Yeah. Did that work? No, it's terrible. It's the worst. It was the worst opening to any speech I've ever given. It was absolutely atrocious. And as I recall, it was one of those speeches where a slide changes like every, was it every 10 or 15 seconds? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I used up my first slide and a half telling a bad frog joke that nobody got. And yeah. so I was behind on my slides. It was a, <laughs> and you haven't suffered any scars or consequences from that have you my therapist has said to just repress the whole thing so this is bringing it up and i oh, deeply deeply appreciative so is my therapist probably probably two or three more copays out of this one so thank you <laughs> anything i can do to support the industry so, so anyway the, the the line was if i remember right <clears throat> i hope i'm not <clears throat> you know you're clearing your throat because you had laryngitis i i hope i'm not too uh, hard to understand i hope i can get this out uh, i've got a i've got a laryngitis or something basically i've got a frog in my throat and that surprises me because i thought i was a vegetarian <laughs> that's that's how it was supposed to go and uh <laughs> the audience well it didn't help though right that i think the guy that uh i spoke right after intermission i think and the guy that uh was doing hosting the show told like just a like 90 seconds straight of like terrible jokes oh, like just yeah, yeah. oh it, yeah it was but I survived it. All right. Uh, so you really, it was bound to fail just because of the, the guy that went before you. And I, if I'd have known that, I would have never made the recommendation. Yeah. yeah. If that makes you feel better, you run with it. I, I think, you know, it's fine. <laughs> All right. So uh, John is the founder and director of Redmond Proficiency Academy, which is one of the largest brick and mortar charter schools in the nation, uh, has a population of middle school and uh, high school population of several, several hundred students. Um, why'd you do it, John? Why'd you, why'd you start it? Well, about 15 years ago, I was a principal of one of the largest high schools in Oregon. And recognized in that process that despite the Herculean efforts of many wonderful educators, great people, the system was not designed to ensure the success of every student. In fact, public education as a whole from its, from its origins 
was really about classification and preparing for, uh, at some level, the Industrial Revolution for, for line work. And so the bureaucracy associated with it meant that on any given day, in any given high school in the country, and in this case mine, 40 to 80% of the kids were doing just great. I mean, it was fabulous for them. But on any given day, there was, you know, a portion of the population that wasn't doing well. And, and they typically fell into two categories. They were students who needed accelerated learning opportunities. Students that wanted to go further, wanted to go faster, wanted to do more. And those students oftentimes find themselves in the traditional system, bored, maybe taking classes that they have to take because they can't take the next one until they complete that one, even though they have it figured out. And then the other students who were struggling were students that needed a little more time. And mm. because they didn't have the time necessary, they, they were told they were failures. They received Fs. They, and, and those students had a higher propensity to drop out of school. Mm. And so as we sat around my kitchen table trying to figure out what would we design the educational system to look like, we, we came up with the concept of a proficiency-based education in a personalized learning environment. And simply put, what that means is in a traditional system, time is the constant and learning is the variable. So students go to school for a set amount of minutes a day, set number of days a week, set number of weeks per semester. And at the end, everything they've done is put together into a percentage that's then translated to a letter and they move on, good, bad, or otherwise. And what we wanna do is flip that on its head and say, at our school, at this public charter school, time is the, is the variable and learning is the constant. So we set the standard for what students need to be able to know and do and demonstrate, and then they get as much time as they need to do that. If they can do it in six weeks, great. If they can do it 60 weeks, great. What we want is for students all to be able to say they understand and can demonstrate the knowledge and skills that we need them to, to be successful high school graduates and to move on successfully to whatever their next step is. So how does that, that sounds like a great formula, and, and I know from uh, previous conversations and personal experiences uh, that this works. But, for example, standardized tests are, are kind of considered to be the, the standard, the bellwether for whether or not a school is succeeding. So how does a proficiency-based program with time as the variable succeed uh, in terms of standardized testing? Well, we are believers in standardized testing at the Proficiency Academy because we know that those are external standards that are set that if students can demonstrate, then they demonstrate proficiency. And there's various ways to utilize standardized tests. But I think one of the struggles and, you know, one of the struggles people have in education and outside education around standardized testing is that it's the utility of the examination, right? So Samuel Messick wrote uh, volumes about utilitarian validity, this concept that you can have something be reliable and valid as a measure, but what it requires is determining how you're going to utilize it. And anybody who's listening that's read Samuel Messick, uh, I've probably severely understated what Messick was saying. He's one of the most brilliant writers I've ever read around uh, psychometrics and pedagogy. But essentially, the problem that most people have with standardized tests is it's a one-shot high-stakes exam that is in an artificial environment. And major life decisions are made around that, or wow. conceivably they are. Sometimes they're not, but people still dislike them. The way we utilize standardized testing is we say, here's the standard you have to meet. Let's prepare you to meet that. You can demonstrate it through your work. You can demonstrate it through uh, projects for discussions, through papers. But then we also want you to demonstrate it on this, this exam that shows that you have in fact mastered it. That said, it's not the only measure. So it helps us by saying, look, our students are accomplishing what we say they're accomplishing. And it's weird in public education because we've all been so conditioned that our public schools are the best way to educate students, that anything that's outside of that has to prove itself to a public school standard that doesn't exist for public schools, right? So if I have an innovative methodology that I wanna try, I have to show that it's better than what was being done, but I have to do so using the metrics from the previous model. And that just doesn't, it really doesn't make any sense because it, it presumes that nothing can be better than what is currently being offered. Wow. And that's been a struggle educationally since as long as I've been in this business where any reform effort gets met with, but it doesn't look like what we're doing, 
thereby it can't really be effective. So um, good change. This podcast is introducing leaders in different industries to our viewers and listeners. And uh, John, you're certainly that. I've always marveled at the work that you're doing. How, how did you work around these, uh, I guess, roadblocks that were existing in the school setting you were in and in other public education venues? Well, for most of my career, I didn't know that that was what was happening, mm -hmm. right? So uh, early on in my career, my first principal job was at a small elementary school that was um, struggling with its, its reading scores and its reading performance. And it was a high poverty school, uh, depending on the year, 15 to 25% of the students um, were, had an incarcerated adult uh, in their life, mm -hmm. um, usually a father. Um, 75, 85% of our students were on free lunch. Um, we had students, uh, high numbers of students that were homeless or experiencing, you know, uh, homelessness. And so we had low, low results and people just accepted it because, well, look at all the troubles these kids have. Mm -hmm. And the approach that I was able to take with just a, an amazing staff of people who helped grow me as an administrator was, but what if we change a variable? What if we say, no, you're going to be a reader because if you're a reader, we can change the trajectory of your life, hmm. which ultimately should be the goal of education and of every educator is to be the change that alters the trajectory of the student's life. Now, the good side of it is that when it, when it works well, it's amazing. And, but we also have, unfortunately, probably many of us in our lives have had educators that maybe sent us down a different path. But mm -hmm. what we decided at this elementary school was we were going to uh, change the way in which we did reading instruction to ensure students could read. It was met with all sorts of, you know, people battling it, but we were so dead set on ensuring these students could make it that we kind of eliminated the noise. And as we started doing that, we realized, wait a minute, many of these families need social services. Why do we have these families who are struggling to begin with try to get their kid to school, then try to get to see their caseworker, then try to get SNAP benefits. So we changed one of our classrooms to a uh, community room and we mm -hmm. brought in representatives from uh, Department of Human Services, from the, 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 the folks who were distributing food assistance. Um, we contracted with, we, we earned a grant and contracted with the police department to have a non-sworn officer there to help, um, you know, mediate disputes and things of that nature. And so what we did is we just said, we're not going to let these kids fail. And we saw the reading results go from the 60s to the 90s. And um, we saw students really start to succeed. And that changed the trajectory of their life. As I moved on in my career, I just kept, I just kept doing that thing, right? Where it was like, well, let's, let's make this work. It wasn't until I exited the system into the charter school world that I realized exactly how revolutionary that was and why it was so difficult for me to, to maintain long-term employment in, uh, in some school districts. <laughs> so uh, despite, despite your uh, needing to move on, whether by choice or otherwise, um, are you saying that a foundational principle or a foundational concept to change is to say where you want to go and then go there as opposed to say where we've come from and where we would like to go? I think there's part of that. You know, I've actually been thinking about this a lot lately in terms of this idea of goal setting and um, how so much of what we've taught people about goal setting is from uh, a seemingly uh, white male heteronormative standpoint, right? That, um, you know, we've talked all the time about smart goals. Well, set, set your goal, what's your plan, take your steps. And it is so much grounded in the power structure that, it, that has existed in, in the patriarchal uh, approach we've taken to things in this country that I used to think, yeah, set, set the goal, march the plan. But what I've started to really come to terms with is I've helped my, my daughter, who's now a college graduate, get into her, her adult life, is set intentions for what it is you want to do and you know, what it is you want to see in the world and then take steps every day towards that intention. Mm -hmm. 
that allows you to go on a pathway that leads you to a better place, right? So, I mean, I, I was one of these young people that I went to college, I went to grad school, I got my doctorate because I knew, boom, 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 boom. If I map this whole thing out, I'm going to get somewhere, right? But I had the benefits of being a part of a power structure that made that ultimately possible. There are other people in our society who don't have the same benefit of that power structure. And I think we need to recognize that and say, okay, so to make good change, what is it that you want the world to look like? And every day, take a step towards that. Move, move yourself towards that intention without regard to what step it is along the path, without regard to, you know, you know how does this measure up? Because if I've learned anything in, you know, two and a half decades of being an educator is not every day is going to be your best day. And if we judge ourselves only on steps made on our best day, we will constantly find ourselves filled with dread and, 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 and trepidation. And that will lead us further away from our intentions. Wow. That's brilliant. So basically realizing a goal is not having a, a set of rigid benchmarks that are taking place in the future at set times, two weeks from now, two months from now, two years from now, but what, rather it's, it's realizing success, realizing change is just living day to day with the intention driving some change or some difference or some step in behavior. That's my current operating theory. Yes. <laughs> So it's worked well. This is a public charter school. Um, the feedback that you're getting from people around the community, because it is cutting edge, it's not cookie cutter education. Um, what's, what's the feedback? Actually, let's back up a little bit. When you first opened, um, what was the perception of community members, pro and con? And then what's the perception today? Well, it's interesting, you know, when we think about setting the intentions, my, my intention when we founded the charter school was to provide an educational opportunity, not a panacea, but an educational opportunity for people to choose another way to access education so mm -hmm. they could accelerate or decelerate. The very first budget I built for this school hoped that we might find 50 students who would, would take advantage of it. Maybe, maybe if we find 50 students, this is going to be a success. Mm. It opened year one with just under 150 students. We're now in year 12 with over 930 students. And so when we started, the pushback was, I think what a lot of public charter schools face is, well, you're, you're taking away from the public system, right? The, we have a school system. We don't need something else. Mm. And, and so there was pushback on that. There was pushback on the pedagogical theory right? This proficiency thing, it's, it's not rigorous enough or, uh, you know, students don't have to suffer enough for their education, right? How can a student possibly demonstrate that they know algebra in six weeks when other kids have to take it for 36 weeks? Wow. And so that was some of the, the pushback. The other pushback was we're located in the middle of our downtown, right? And so uh, I think one of the biggest hurdles we've had to overcome is in much of our society, schools fill a role that we don't like to talk about. And that is during the weekday, during the workday, during the work year, young people are not seen or heard. They're tucked away in schools, hmm. right? They're tucked away. And, and in communities, sometimes when you have a school like ours in the middle of downtown and students have some freedom, it freaks people out yeah. because, hey, there are teenagers on the street. <laughs> what is happening? Something must be wrong. Mm -hmm. Rather than seeing teenagers as, as contributing members to a community, they're seen as where are they supposed to be. So that was some of the some of the things we had to overcome. But we were absolutely blessed with incredible support from people who wanted something, wanted to see somebody try something different. Try it. Try it. What it, it, what's the worst thing that happens? It fails, and we already know how to achieve what we've been achieving. We just go back and do it. So take the take a chance. So we had a, a great deal of support for people that said, yeah, take a chance. So, fast forward. Oh, go ahead. 
Uh, the quick question here, something you just said, which gave me goosebumps, where you said there, there's kids on the street. There's kids on the street and, and how strange and threatening and unusual that, that might be. And I'm thinking about the, the impact that that would have on the kids where it was okay for them to interact in the community, where they, they, they realized that there was a, 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 at least some cross-section of this culture that accepted them folding in. And, and I, I just, I can't help but imagine that that would empower them and, and uh, more deeply attach them to the school that they're going to. Is that, was that a side effect from that? It, it was definitely a side effect is that students saw themselves as part of the community. And that comes with a commitment to being a good community member, to giving back to the community, um, to engaging with people, right? I mean, so much of what we face in terms of the troubles that we face today is the lack of positive discourse amongst mm -hmm. people. And so to have our young people interact with the local, you know, local vendors, to have young people interact with uh, community members, it creates a sense of importance to them. Like mm -hmm. I'm important. I'm somebody that matters because I'm a part of this discourse. And that has been an unintended consequence that has paid huge dividends, I think, for, for our young people. And, and I think for our community, I think it's, yeah. you know, it's, it's so funny. The thing that drove people nuts early on that I, I remember this conversation and I, I probably need to find a better way to tell this story, but I get called into a meeting and um, community folks, there's chamber of commerce folks, there might've been some, some city folks and they were upset about kids being downtown. And so we you know, what, what is driving this? What is the problem? It came down to the way they looked right? They, their hair was a certain way. They, their pants they wore were a certain way. They're, you know, they, shouldn't there be a dress code? These kids need to learn manners and respect. And I remember standing up in this meeting and say, folks, do me a favor. Raise your hand if you wore a V-neck velour shirt and bell bottoms one day. Just raise your hand, right? I said, so why are we condemning the way kids look today? Right? This, is, this isn't what we're about as a community. It's not what we should be about as a people. Stop judging these young people because you don't like the color of their hair. You don't like the way they wear their pants. Do they have to find times in which they need to conform in order to access things? Yes. Yes, they do. Just like we all do. But they can't learn that if we mandate them that they have to fall in line with what we want when we want it. And when we do that, we lose the opportunity to have a discourse with them. We lose the opportunity to teach them and they lose trust in us. Yeah. So you have to embrace our young people for who they are and then help them understand who they can be. But man, if we, if we jump all over kids because we don't like the pants they're wearing, we're losing opportunities to change lives. And, and how did that go over? Mixed results. Some people celebrated it and some people, you know, called me, you know, whatever names they want to call people who are progressive. They, they didn't call you Dr. John Bullock in that setting. Not in that setting. I don't think. Yeah. So uh, now let's go to where we're at today. We talked about the initial reaction in town. Now let's go to where we're at today. Well, there are uh, a couple measures of charter schools, you know, that, that we look at. One is um, one is enrollment and retention and, and demand. And so our enrollment is, you know, like I said, over 900 students. We've got a 200, 300 students on the wait list. Um, over 90% of our students return every year. So we're meeting some really high criteria for success. Uh, the other is student graduation rates. Um, we have graduated in the past two years, 92 and 94% of our student population. And what I'm really proud of with that is in both years, there was only one time where we had a student population group. So the state, you know, disaggregates data. And there was only one population group in that entire time where we were below 90% for that population group. And we were in the mid 80s. And so what that says is hmm. it's working for every demographic of student that we yeah. serve. Yeah. And that's important because sometimes charter schools are seen as only serving privileged kids, only serving students from the cream of the crop and leaving other students behind. And that's not who we are. We want to serve a, a broad base of students. The other thing is that we attract students from the entire region. So we have students from three different counties and six different school districts that attend our school. 
we have some students who travel by bus as much as an hour a day each mm -hmm. way to come to our school. So they bypass not only their local school, but they bypass another school or two on the way to get to us. So we feel like that's emblematic of, of our success. But I think it is the community belief in us and our students that really tells us that we're, we're, we're onto something, right? Commu community members talk positively about our students. Um, community members want to come see our students in action. They wanna be involved in our students. So those are things that tell me that we have support. Now, like everything in today's world, is it 100%? No, uh, you know, but we are enough, we've established ourselves as enough of a part of our community that we will have longevity because of that. And for, for public charter schools, longevity is, you know, rare. It's hard to come by. And yeah. we're, we're into year 12. Um, and I think that that, you know, that in and of itself is a, is accomplishment. So it, we've talked about the community accepting you, uh, recognizing that you're doing things differently. Give us some examples. We, you said that things are uh, based in downtown, the high school is based in downtown. Uh, give us some, some specific examples uh, about how things operate differently, either as a campus or in the classroom. Um, maybe talk about teacher uh, qualifications or pedagogy styles. Um, what are a handful, three or four different things that if somebody walked into this school, they would say, that's why it's succeeding. This is different. Well, wow. I, there's a list of things I want to tell you about that. I, I think the first one I'll settle on is um, I, an unofficial policy we have that is basically ask anyone anything. Mm. So if someone comes to our school to visit, they can ask any person, staff member, student, whatever they want about our school. And we have complete trust that they will get um, a high quality answer that is truthful and transparent. And I know when I was running one of the largest high schools in Oregon, when we had visitors come, we would get our bright and shiny kids and get them up front and they would take people on tours and then they would go to a specific room where they met with an, you know, a group of bright and shiny kids. And, uh, and I don't think that's uncommon. I don't think it's nefarious. I don't think it's bad, but at RPA, you can ask anyone anything and I'm not worried about it because what we've created is a culture that is, that is embedded throughout our entire system. That is one of mutual respect. That is one of learning. And that is one of, I think, kindness. And that's a, that's an unintended offshoot as well. We, you know, we didn't go out and say, we need to play, make a place where there's kindness. But I think if you really want to have a place where there's mutual respect and learning, kindness is an, is an outcropping of that. So that's one is ask anyone, ask anything. And um, with that, when we're not doing things well and people notice it and kids talk about it or parents do or community members do or family members do, we address it. We deal with it. We, we don't say, well, that's just the way we do it. We say, well, how can we do it better? And so that ask anyone, ask anything process, I think leads us to continually trying to seek ways to better serve our students. Second example I give you is right now, uh, as, we're, as we're taping this, I know that across the street, our theater troupe is in Centennial Park, the city park right in the middle of our town, practicing for their spring musical. Um, and so they are spread out across this big park, uh, singing and dancing and acting and because we can't, we can't have them all inside right now because of, because of COVID. And yeah. so they have, they have embraced uh, the, the Centennial Park as a place where they can engage. So the community gets to see them, gets to interact with them. People stop and watch. People ask them what they're doing. And, you know, our theater program has become something that is, um, you know, we, I think uh, we're going on five straight national championships in theater. Holy and cow. That was never the intention, right? They never, we, we didn't build this thing. We want to be uh, one of the top theater schools in Oregon and maybe the country. No, we wanted to build a place where kids could belong, where kids could feel like they were honored for who they were. They got to be themselves. And we found that theater is a great way for that for some students. And so we have this robust theater program with a teacher who is, who not only went to school and has a BFA in theater, but has been a professional actor. She's, she's trained as a professional actor and she has come to us to now share that knowledge with our students. 
And one of the great things about the public charter school process is she's not a traditionally licensed teacher, right? She didn't go through teacher training in the same way. But because we're a public charter school, we can invest in educators who are not traditional educators. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we get to have someone who, who had a career in professional theater, now teaching our students how to become, uh, you know, great at theater and it's, yeah. it's paid dividends. I think if there's a third example I would point out is that we have um, intersessions between our high school semesters called Jan term and June term. So there's three week mini terms where students take one class and they take it all day every day for three weeks. And it's designed around the idea of breaking up the semesters, uh, giving students a chance to experience something deeply giving students who need more time from the first semester time to engage in that learning. Mm -hmm. But what happens is our students go out and do things in the community in some cases. Our art students uh, painted, um, painted one of the underpasses, did a mural. Another time our art students helped design uh, the art for a cul-de-sac. Um, we have students go out to the local outdoor school and they serve as camp counselors. Um, we have students engage in the world around them so that they understand this trite thing that we say in education, which is, you know, we want lifelong learners and uh, learners are 24 seven, except in public school where we say it only counts between September and June from seven to three, Monday through Friday. We're saying no, every day, all day, you can be a learner and you can contribute to our community. And so we have opportunities where students can actually go out and do that, receive academic credit for it, and see themselves as an important part of the community. Wow. So those are significant, significant differences. And I, I think you hit one nail on the head, and that is that with charter public schools, public charter schools, or obviously private charter schools, you have the ability to, to hire teachers that uh, haven't gone through the traditional process to become a teacher. And so you're bringing this literal boots on the ground experience to all kinds of different classrooms and education opportunities. And I'm guessing that the students so appreciate that because it's not just theory at that point. It's somebody who's been on the ground, got their hands dirty in an industry, telling them what it's like to going to, what it's going to be like to be in an industry. And I think that's important for students because one of the things we know is that if students find something they're passionate about and they learn deeply, whatever they approach next, they can, have a greater appreciation for it. And so if you have somebody who's been in that industry, in this case, theater, and students can learn deeply about that, whatever they do next, whether it's theater or something else, they have an understanding that it's far more complicated than it might first appear, mm. right? I think, I think we see this all the time in the restaurant industry, right? And I, I dabbled in the restaurant industry many, many years ago. It would be fun to own a restaurant, people hey, think, hey, right? Wait, was it you that spilled that tray of drinks on my lap that one time? N no. No, I deny it. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, we look at it and people are like, hey, it'd be fun to own a restaurant. It'd be fun to open, open a bar, right? Sure, it, it appears fun. But everything that goes into making a restaurant successful um, is incredibly detailed, incredibly mm. disciplined. And it's why so many restaurants fail, right? It's people have, you know, good intentions and great ideas and that they're excited about it. But, oh, you mean there's an HR component? Oh, you mean there's an accounts payable component? Oh, you mean, so it's not just, I cook with the food I like to, yeah. for my friends. And so we want students to have that experience in school where whether it's theater or robotics or literature, dive super deep, understand there's always more to understand so that the next thing you approach, you can approach it in a way that you're better prepared to learn and have a deeper appreciation for it. And so, so does that's that what we mean try to do. Does that mean proficiency-based education gives you the opportunity to use a more diverse palette of instructional material, of real life experiences, of whatever, in order to, in order to prove that you're proficiency in an academic area? Yeah, and so I think it's, it's, it's germane to uh, charter schools. And you've heard me say it a number of times, public charter schools. There's actually no such thing as a private charter school. Uh, charter schools by their nature are uh, you know, quasi-government entities that operate under a contract with a taxing district or school district, right? But we emphasize public charter schools because many people don't think of charter schools as public schools for one, 
But there are also public charter schools that are run by for-profit private entities. Mm. And so sometimes the charter school world gets a, a bad rap for, for, um, for behaviors of, of, of entities that aren't like, like ours. And so I've actually been a part of a group. We founded a, a coalition called the Oregon Coalition of Community Charter Schools that is focused on community-based charter schools. And we always talk about ourselves as public charter schools because we want the public to know we're publicly funded, we're publicly accountable, and we provide education for students in our, in our communities. And so I, 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 always, I always like to point that out because I, I've been in the industry, you know, I've been in the education industry two and a half decades. I've been in the charter school world for uh, a decade and a half or so. And I forget it's still new to people, right? Mm -hmm. Charter school law in our state is, uh, you know, just over 20 years old. But your question was about this licensure thing. And one of the great things about our, our curriculum was public charter schools have, they receive fewer state funds in exchange for fewer regulations. And so uh, interesting. We, we are able to be much more nimble. We are able to um, make curriculum choices that are in our best interest and our need without regard for the, you know, largely bureaucratic processes that districts have to go through. And rightly so, they're large, they're large operations. They have, you, you have to have bureaucracy to, to make them run. So we do have some freedoms that are, that we receive in exchange for um, receiving less money mm -hmm. and, and in exchange for commitment to being a, um, a place of innovation. We, we, charter schools are charged with being innovative. And so we're continually trying to find innovative practices. You know, one of my favorite stories about that is our Spanish language program now is uh, based on a, a theory of called organic language acquisition or, or now known as organic world languages. And our Spanish teacher came to me several years ago in October and said, John, I've, I found this way I'd like to teach Spanish, but there's a in, training in, this, in October. So the school year started. School year started. Yeah. He says, I'd, but there's this training. Um, it's next weekend. You know, is it something we can think about? I said, well, do you want to go next weekend? He said, can I? Yeah, go next weekend. So he went next weekend. He came back. I want to do this. I said, what do you need? He said, I need all the tables and chairs out of the classroom. I said, okay, how long do you need to start? I said, well, I, I mean, I'd start tomorrow, but shouldn't we wait? I'm like, no, start tomorrow. We went and we moved the tables and chairs. We started that day because he had found a better way in his wow. professional opinion to teach Spanish. And it was no one speaks anything other than Spanish in the classroom. Even if you don't know any Spanish, we're going to learn it in an organic way, the same way that young people learn a new language when they're learning to speak. Hmm. I don't know how to say this word. So I'm going to I'm going to point, I'm going to say words I know, I'm going to listen to other people, and then I'm going to say it, and then I know it. And so now we have students, because we've developed this program, that through a proficiency agreement um, we have with a, with a university in the state, students can earn up to 24 college credits by demonstrating their proficiency in Spanish. Holy cow. So... Um, with all of that freedom and that flexibility comes obviously great rewards. And, and you talked about some of the more traditional metrics like graduation rates and, and uh, standardized testing. Um, are you still held to the same graduation standards as other public schools, regular public schools? Yeah, we're held to all of the same academic standards as, as all the other schools. We have the same uh, graduation um, requirements. We have the same uh, testing requirements. We have the same curricular requirements. We just have freedoms in the way in which we can implement pedagogy, the freedoms in which we can access curriculum. Um, but our students are still held to the same standards as, as other students. So you talked about a, uh, bringing the community together, for lack of a better term, around Redmond Proficiency Academy and the downtown interaction with students and members of this community. Uh, you've talked about um, different steps to realize change. And that includes the intention and the day-to-day -day actions that people can take in order to, to accomplish things. Um, I'd, I'd kind of like to take that out and see how this could work on a, on a more national level or at least regional level without education as, as what we're studying. Let's say that you had a teacher that uh, had a classroom with uh, divided 
student body. So half of the class felt passionately about certain things a certain way, and the other half of the classroom felt passionately about other things and, and uh, didn't agree with uh, the other side at all. And this teacher is having problems bringing the classroom together for individual and collective growth. Uh, what advice would you give to the teacher to help make that happen? Well, it's a complex problem uh, that you presented. I think I would, you know, first I, I tap back into my understanding of adolescent behavior and um, something we, we think about in terms of um, a process called positive behavioral interventions and support, which is, is a complicated theory um, with lots of applications. But one of the things I, I've always taken away from it is that people's behavior is either to gain something or avoid something, right? There's a, there's a functional part of their behavior. And so part of trying to determine how to work with students that are, that are struggling is you conduct something called a functional behavior analysis. You say, what, what is it that this behavior is trying to achieve? And is that a positive or negative thing? Is it to gain something is to avoid something? And how by knowing that can we alter what we do? Because if, if we can figure out what people are trying to gain or avoid, hmm. and we can then help them shape their behavior in a way where they can get what it is they want and still accomplish what they need to accomplish. It's overly simplified, of course, but um, I, I would think back to that and try and figure out with each individual student, not just the sides, but what is it, what is it that you're trying to gain or avoid, right? Trying to, I try and figure that out because the simple answer is, well, let's find one thing that everybody can agree on. Mm. Well, I, I'm not sure that that's, necessarily the way I'd start. I'd start by trying to figure, what are we trying to get and what are we trying to avoid here? Um, Then I also would think about ways in which we could, we could remove self from it, right? Because so much of what gets in our way as humans is our focus on self, right? Mm -hmm. And when we can, when we can escape from our self, we can accomplish great things. But when we make it about ourself intentionally, unintentionally, with good intention, with bad intention, when we make it about ourself, we, we miss what the real possibilities are. And I know that all of my greatest successes in life have largely come when it was not about me. And so taking those two concepts of, you know, functional behavior analysis and removal of self, that's what I would help that teacher try and do with the students and with the teacher themselves. Like, this isn't your problem. Like the, you, this isn't about you take it, you know, this is about how, you know, what are we trying to get? What are we trying to avoid? And ultimately would look for ways to force partnerships around common goals, hmm. right? So here's the deal. I'm going to pair you up with you and I need you to accomplish this thing. And for that, you will either get the reward that you want or the thing you're trying to avoid right? So I need you to do this thing. And in doing this thing, you'll get this or that. By doing that sort of forced partnership concept that allows both parties to achieve either their gain or avoidance reward, you create a sense of being able to work together, even if it's forced, even if it's stilted, even if it's fake, they're both trying to get to the same thing, which is for themselves. Then you continue to do things like that, that they cause that and you create discourse and that discourse then allows the self to slowly get removed from it so Mm -hmm. that it can be about, Oh, what are we trying to accomplish together? I think the struggle is right. And if you look at, you know, um, if you look at national politics, for example, everybody has to be willing to participate in it though, right? Mm -hmm. There has to, it has to be willing participants. And so in a classroom, we're more, we're more likely to have willing participants because students by and large are motivated by similar things, either a grade, getting out of class, being done with school. So I can get you going in the same direction because you know, we, we're all going to get out this door as soon as we're all able to do this thing. You know, um, you know, when I think about, you know, the national political implications of that. I think some of those strategies could work, but I also think sometimes they can't because people aren't, 
they're not they're not willing participants, right? Not you know, and if you don't have willing participants, you, it's hard to get anywhere with with that. So is is there taking it out to the national level? Is is there a intention or a goal uh, or an ideal that you think we could all ascribe to, similarly to? a classroom of 20 kids or 30 kids wanting to get out of the door. Yeah, I wish that there was, I wish I could say with great certainty that, you know, we all could focus on this thing or we all share that. For me, it's, I find myself as I, you know, become more experienced in my career, I just want to find ways to make people's lives better, right? Mm -hmm. Just like what, what is it that we can do each day to help somebody make their life better. Because people helped me make my life better. People I didn't even know. People I didn't even know were trying to do it. So what can I do to help make somebody's life better? And doggone it, it's, it's simple things. It's, it's telling the person who poured your coffee, thank you, have an awesome day. It's when you stop at a four-way stop, smile, wave, don't flash your, your lights or honk your horn, right? And it's also when that person does that to you, accept that for them right then in that point in time, that's the only way they could express whatever it is that's controlling them, right? And so for me, I wish that we could get to a spot where our shared goal was to help other people. But I'm, a, I'm afraid that we've, we've gone so deep into a scarcity you know, scarcity of resource mindset. Yeah. That it becomes, it becomes crazy difficult, right? I was talking to somebody, a friend of mine the other day about the $1,400 stimulus checks from the, from this, this, the American Recovery Act. Mm -hmm. And this person, I know what they make for a living. They make less than the median family income for our region. They, but they think they make a good living. I think they make a good living, but it's less than the median family income. It's a, they're one person. And they're like, I don't really need that $1,400. And I feel kind of guilty about getting it. And I said, that's because we've built a system where we've told you that you don't deserve to be helped, where it's okay for us to create tax write-offs for private jets, but a working class person making less than the median income is supposed to feel bad for getting $1,400. Yeah. And no, that $1,400 is not going to change that person's life. They're not going to fundamentally alter the trajectory of their life, but it's going to make it a little bit easier. And you know what this person said they wanted to do with the money? Find somebody else who needed it more Wow. and help them. That's somebody who I, I know what they make and they, they're, they're not in poverty, but they're also, they're not living large. Ken. Yeah. They're, they're, they are the heart of this country. They are the American working class. And we've conditioned this group to believe that they don't deserve people helping them. And we've allowed people to quantify what is help and what isn't help, mm. right? That this type of subsidy is just part of the economy and this type of subsidy is helping people. And people that receive this subsidy shouldn't feel ashamed, but if you receive this subsidy, you should. Mm. I am here today because at some point, a school gave me a free meal. I'm here at this point today because at some point the government gave me peanut butter. I'm here today because the government at some point gave me a Pell Grant to help pay for college. They gave that to me because they believed in me and mm. they believed that I could make a difference in the world. We can't continue to shame people who receive help as if they're not worthy and that's why they're receiving help. They're receiving help because they deserve it and they will do good with it. And will there be people that don't? Yes. But that percentage of people isn't worth sacrificing the other over. And we've allowed that to become the dominant thinking in, in political discourse is this idea of scarcity. We live in a country where there is more than enough that no child should ever go hungry again in this country. Mm. No child should go hungry. I have kids that leave my school every day that go home hungry. That we, we, that we grab an extra sack lunch and put it in their hand so they don't go home hungry. We live in the richest country in the world and that happens. It's not okay. Yeah. But we've built this idea that that's what they deserve. And that's not, that's what we have to change. So if, if there's something for the, the larger discourse, it's that we should be about helping other people. That's what we should be about. 
And and you just described a perfect example of that with the, the, the person that is getting their subsidy and then wanting to give that to somebody else. So um, uh, one of one of the attempts of this podcast is to give people some peace of mind and some hope, uh, something tangible to sink their teeth into in terms of change. And I think your um, example of your charter school and your staff's charter school and your student and your community's charter school is a perfect way to feel something positive about change. And, and maybe the hope and the peace of mind uh, for this more ubiquitous national level change comes from just noticing things like you just described with this one individual and, and letting that have as much impact on your psyche and your soul as all of the stuff that is driving us crazy, like a scarcity mentality and not thinking that we need to help each other up is, am I accurate in that thinking? I think, I think it's a really good thought. I mean, I, I, we, we have so much power to change the world around us. And we think that we have to do grandiose, grandiose actions to make change. And, and we really don't. I mean, we, we just need to be there for people in whatever moment they're in mm. and provide them that help. And it's one of the things I love about education is we don't know when that moment's going to hit. Oh yeah. We don't know what it is we're going to say that's going to fundamentally alter the trajectory of a student's life. But we have been empowered, blessed, pick your term, to have that opportunity, right? So as an educator, I have the opportunity every single day to say something, to do something, to act in a way that a student's life is changed forever. And it's a great power and it comes with great responsibility. Mm -hmm. But I think that extends to all of us in our community. I mean, I, it's, it seems maybe trite, it seems maybe overly simplistic, but I'm serious when I say saying please and thank you, not because it's manners, not because it's how you, but so that somebody else feels recognized, they feel seen, they feel appreciated. That, that goes so long in, in people's lives. But we've been conditioned to think that only people in power can make a difference or that, you know, it's got to be a big deal. Uh, I, saw, I saw a GoFundMe the other day, which is you could probably do a whole series of podcasts on our reliance on crowdsourcing to pay for things yeah. and the good and the bad in that. But um, uh, this, this gentleman passed away and um, this, this group, uh, the Timbers army with Portland Timbers, I'm a huge Timbers fan. I'm part of the Timbers army. Um, started GoFundMe for this, for this man's family. And there were people that, all they could give was five bucks, but that five bucks meant the world to that family. Yeah. The same as this person that gave 500 bucks. Right. And you know, some people don't even have five bucks to give, but the, the point is, is that like, it wasn't the amount. It wasn't, it wasn't that five bucks or even 500 bucks was going to ease their pain or grief, but it meant that people in that community were saying, Hey, we're here for it. We've got you. We've got you. If we took that kind of action every day, just in our general, you know, general outlook that we've got you, we've got you. Yeah. Man, the change would be, it would be so enormous that nothing could hold us back. We would no longer be controlled by a scarcity mentality or controlled by what we think is power. We, we would have control. We've got you. Right. And mm -hmm. I, it's interesting. I've, I've adopted this in my own life with my daughter is that I regularly tell her when we text or chat, I've got your back. Yeah. You've got this. I've got your back. No matter what happens in this world, I've got you. Mm. So go be you. And if we just, I just think it's, it's little things like that. Just being seen and knowing that people will, will have your back. Yeah. That's very, very powerful idea. Very powerful words. And I, I, I understand that your daughter is having a great time in college. I'll be a little different with COVID and, uh, I'm, I'm guessing a big part of that is because she knows people have her back, just like people had your back when you were growing up. It, you described the, the the meals and the peanut butter and the and the Pell Grants, and uh, it, it seems like we've lost track of that simple simple thing. But your stories just now reminded me, reminded us, I hope, uh, as, as to the power and and um, the why behind doing that. So. Um, 
have you have, have you ever seen the Led Zeppelin uh, Kennedy Center's honors things where uh, they where Hart and Lenny Kravitz are playing songs to the members of Led Zeppelin? Have you seen that? No, I have it, not. It's classic. It, it, it it's the uh, John Paul Jones and Robert Plant and uh, Jimmy Page up in the crowd and on stage is uh, John Bonham's son playing the drums and it's a, such a touching moment because these guys. Uh, even even though they're the, as wealthy and as famous and as powerful as probably just about anybody on earth could be, they're just touched by the regard that they're getting from the musicians in the crowd. And and you think about it, somebody at that level, at, at that stature level, um, just um, embracing and being so touched by that regard that what you describe with the $5 Kickstarter thing, it must be just as powerful, just as rewarding and humbling to the people that need it as these three superstars up on stage. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I and it's the best of us, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's giving and whether it's time or money or a wave or a hug, it's giving to help other people that allow us. I mean, I think it's what's, it's the most human of qualities, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's, so I, I just, I don't know the scope any of us have in our impact, right? I, I don't know how far the ripples go. Yeah. But what I do know is that if we just make one ripple, good chance it's going to continue making others, right? Yeah. yeah. And if instead of worrying about the whole lake, right, just, just worry about the, the puddle in front of us, right? Yeah. I mean, like that's, that allows us to make massive change. And that, that's, it's taken me, you know, a good portion of my life to get to a spot where I've recognized that. And it's created for me um, a way to more peaceably interact with the world mm. when I recognize that I'm not responsible for all of it, but I damn sure I'm responsible for what's right in front of me. Mm. And I have an obligation to treat what's in front of me with the highest regard and respect because it's also in front of somebody else, but just from a different perspective. Mm. And it's that kind of care and concern that allows us to, to make change, to, yeah. make, to make good change. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. that's, and it's not how this charter school started, but that's how this charter school will be. Mm. We're going to take that approach. And we have for some time, but it, when we started, we just want to find a better way to give people an opportunity. And it's grown into a movement about how, how do we care for one another so that the world that we're going out into as, as young people is more reflective of the way we want the world to be. Right we have an obligation to that. Yeah. We have a responsibility to that. It's not somebody else's job. It's ours. Yeah. So, um, I, uh, you, yeah, you burn both ends of the candle to make this thing happen. You've got a dedicated staff. You've got a satisfied community. Um, you're uh, working as hard as anybody I could imagine to help make things better, working towards good change. Do you ever just sit back and drool on yourself? Do you run out of gas? Do you, what do you do to recharge? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm getting better at it, you know, um, I used to run until I just burn out and then I would um, disappear for a day. If I didn't physically, I did mentally. And I've, it's because, it's because I used to subscribe to, and I think a lot of people still have it. And if you do, and it works for you, that's awesome. But like this, this idea of work-life balance where, um, you know, work hard, play hard concept. Um, I always felt that when you did that, that, you would feel guilty for one or the other, right? Like, well, I didn't play hard enough this weekend and now I'm bummed because I got to go back to work and now am I going to work as hard? And when I accepted that what I'm going to do here professionally is my work and my life, when I allowed those to be integrated in, in a way, it fundamentally changed for me the way I approach this work. And so I, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me what the hours are anymore. It doesn't matter to me what the days are anymore. I'll get my time when I need my time. I'll, 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 you know, and I've been so fortunate in doing this, what it's allowed me to do professionally and personally. It's 
beyond my wildest dreams. As a kid that grew up in a double wide trailer, if you told me that one day I'd be an elected official and then I'd be on the board of trustees of a university, um, not only I would have laughed, some of my teachers probably would have said, wait a minute, what, what was his name? <laughs> you know, I mean, like uh, this career has afforded me opportunities that I wouldn't have otherwise received. And so I just go because that's who, this is, this is what I want to do. Like I, I want to create educational opportunities for children in our community and for professionals in education to be the best they can be. And I'll rest when I rest. I don't, you know, it's, but it's taken me a while to get there because I used to have this idea that like, well, there's gotta be a balance and I should feel guilty if I'm working too hard or I should feel guilty that I didn't play hard enough. Right. No, like it's right. The cliche, right. Do what you love. You'll never work a day in your life or whatever that old, saw is. I I don't know if that's true or not, but I feel fortunate that I'm doing something I am completely in love with. And the people in my life who love me see that in me and support it. Right. So my support system, I'm, you know, it's, I'm over the moon, right. I've got, I've got, uh, you know, uh, these two wonderful women who love me, uh, endlessly and support every crazy idea I have. And so I, it, that helps, right? I, I got to give credit where credit is due on that. And, you know, I, it's funny. I was going to ask you uh, as kind of a wrap up of this is uh, who, who would you like to honor? And I think you just did, you know, I think you just, you just touched on it. And it was very touching yeah. to hear that um, these, these two beautiful people in your life are affording you the opportunity to uh, do what you love, which, which means you've got more love to give them. Yeah, they, they are, uh, you know, they, they, they keep me grounded because they, they don't put up with any of my, uh, any of my shit. I don't know if I can say that on your podcast. But, uh, let me, th- let me check the rule yeah. book. I mean, okay. they don't, yeah, yeah, you can't, you know, they, they call me on it, right. They call yeah. me on it. Um, but they also know that I'm doing what I love and they love me for it. Yeah. You know, the, the other person I, I, I really have to appreciate in this process is my father. Um, I was so lucky that he married my mom. Um, when I was, uh, I was a young child and he chose to be my dad, right? Mm -hmm. He, he made a choice he didn't have to make a selfless choice to be my dad. And I've never known any other father. He's my dad. I, I love him to the ends of the earth. And from him, I learned this selflessness that is, I didn't realize at the time, right? You don't, you know, you don't realize it until things until later, but like the choice he made to become my dad, he did not have to make. He made it out of love. He made it out of selflessness. And I am a better man and a better father and a better partner because he did that. And it's not lost on me any day of the week that he did that, you know? And I mean, I love my mother. She's an amazing woman. She raised four kids that, you know, have gone on to do, you know, I'm so proud of my siblings, but uh, you know, if I had to point to one person, it'd be my dad. Like he, he didn't have to do that. And he did. And, I'm here where I am because of him. And here's what's remarkable about that to come full circle on this conversation. And we talked about this earlier um, and and you nailed it as a, as a cornerstone to good change. And that is choose, choose to be kind, choose to be engaged, choose to be committed to something you love, choose, choose to be, choose to tend to others. Yeah. So you're a shining example of that, John Bullock, and I appreciate all the work that you've done in your community and our community um, for the education world uh, in its entirety, because uh, if you start small and indicate that things can change, then people take notice and they'll change as well. And uh, I'm grateful to you for spending this time with us. I I think our viewers and listeners will be um, awestruck by the work that you're doing and grateful to you. Uh, any last parting words you'd like to share? No, I just really, I deeply appreciate your friendship and thanks for including me in this, in this podcast venture. I'm, I'm excited to see how it turns out. And uh, I, I'm sad for the folks watching that it's a video podcast, uh, but uh, you know, they can always, 
they can always just turn on audio only maybe. <laughs> Which reminds me, you know, when I was in high school, speaking of high school, there were exactly 500 boys in my uh, senior class, my graduating class. 500 boys and which is odd just normally not an even number like that but um they we took a survey and uh out of those 500 boys i was voted the second best looking which i thought was an honor until i realized that the other 499 tied for first <laughs> you didn't even vote for yourself right is that what i'm hearing uh, yeah. <laughs> dang it i missed that opportunity <laughs> <laughs> All right. oh. Thank you very much, Dr. John Bullock. It's been a pleasure and uh, I look forward to our uh, conversation taking place uh, in the future and talking more about this kind of stuff. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good night. With every show, we ask our guests to share a video of them doing something fun. One of their favorite songs, a few lines from a book they enjoyed, or a scene from a great movie something that matches their hopes, dreams, and good work. And then we give this to you. Because laughter and beauty soothes, heals, and changes us. You can find and unwrap this gift on any of our social media sites. Thank you for participating in this podcast. Until next time, keep an eye out for change. Good change. And join our movement at kenstreeter.com.